0: Hello, world, and welcome to another episode of Social Justice, the New American Revolution. I'm your host, Jamal, and my other host, Mike. How are you doing, Mike? How are you doing, Jamal? I'm well. I'm just, you know, living life, uh, enjoying (laughs) a a nice, calm evening. So that's uh, a lot to be said there. Mm. So tonight, we have a special guest for all of our listeners. Mr. Bo Shuff. is the executive director of DC Vote. He is in charge of an organization pushing to make DC its very own state. Bo, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me, and thanks for the invite.
0: Of course. We are absolutely looking forward to getting to know you, getting to know your organization, and seeing how people can get involved to assist. Um, Great. So go ahead, Mike. Take the floor.
2: (laughs) So, Bo, uh, we understand that... um, you see the, this particular vote as a racial uh, a racial justice issue. And I kind of want to hear a little bit more about that. Can you tell us a little bit about that, maybe your background?
1: Absolutely. Um, DC statehood is absolutely an issue of racial justice. I mean, the, the short answer is you've got a majority minority population ruled by a Congress that is a majority white. It is literally the definition. Um, of of racial justice, of racial injustice, I should say. Uh, 46% of the population in D.C. is African American, 13% is Latino, uh, and a minority, therefore, is is Caucasian. And so um, it's just simply unjust that Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, where 705,000 people live, have no representation at all in the United States Congress. We have a non-voting delegate in the United States House, and we have no voice and no vote at all in the United States Senate. Um, And it really becomes a racial justice issue when you add in the layer that not only do we not have representation in those bodies, but those bodies get to decide our local laws and our local policies and our local spending and our local taxation. We're at the whims of Congress as to how we spend our own money and the laws we govern ourselves by, even though we have an elected district council and an an elected district mayor. The Congress reserves the right to overturn decisions made by them. So we live in this uh, colony within the country, um, uh, separate and different from every other state, um, and one that is based and rooted in hundreds of years of of racial inequality. Um, uh, Just persists. Um, My background, I come out of, uh, I've spent 20 years in progressive politics, um, be that alternating between uh, candidate campaigns, working directly for candidates running for office, as well as uh, organizational building and uh, organizational advocacy. So working on specific issues or a specific suite of issues for an organization um, from uh, whether that's working in the field or or lobbying Congress, et cetera. I've I've done a multitude of, of things within that space. Um, I came to this fight uh, because my career led me to be um, the campaign manager for the present mayor of Washington, D.C., Muriel Bowser. Uh, I ran her first campaign in 2014. um, And uh, while I knew the city of D.C., I had had been here off and on since 91 when I came for college. Um, I didn't know anything about the city of D.C., it turned out. Uh, And through that campaign, I was able to learn much more about the district and about the people who live here and about the status that we live under. Uh, And I thought it was unjust and it wasn't where we should be. And it wasn't, it wasn't right. Um, And and so an opportunity came to join the organization in 2016. uh, And I did and became the executive director in 2017. And I've been leading the strategic vision of the organization and the movement since.
2: Well, so. I guess I would ask, would you want to elaborate a little bit more on your role for like folks that are just kind of tuning in and maybe some of our listeners that aren't exactly, you know, um, up on this level of, um, of politics happening?
1: Sure. Um, I, I think, I, you know, when I sort of talk about how I got involved with politics, I like to go back to the very beginning because I think it's where a lot of people are, and especially in the environment that we are right now. Um, I got involved in politics when I knocked on a door and started volunteering. Uh, I made phone calls and I knocked on doors and I, I you know, helped build walk packets and I helped make sure the pizza was there and I, I was a volunteer on campaigns and and then I just kind of never stopped um, and, and it turned into more responsibility and more uh, more engagement and learning and and uh, really. Finding out that this is something that I enjoy, but I, I, I think I'm relatively good at as well, based on the fact that I've now been doing it for 20 years. Um, and so if people are coming to an issue that they care about, and, and I got involved because of issues that I cared about, um, because I saw things that bothered me, uh, and it seemed like there ought to be a way to fix them. And in fact, there is. Um, and And politics is about the people who show up. And so if people are coming to this podcast or to the political atmosphere that we're in, I think, they, I think they just started the convention. We've got 77 days left uh, before election day. Now is a great opportunity to really volunteer and, and um, be a sponge. Soak up as much information as you can. Um, so I started as a volunteer. I then became a regional field coordinator in Florida in the year 2000. And we can, that's a whole different episode. And. Um, And I then went to work on issues that mattered to me uh, related to the LGBT community. And I worked in the marriage fight. Um, That took me to Ohio and and a couple of other places. And then I worked on issues all across the country, environmental or immigration issues. Um, And finally, I moved back here to DC to go to work for the Progressive Caucus um, and and work on uh, progressive issues um, uh, here in DC and, and from there. So it is just a, it's a, it is one of those industries where it doesn't matter how you come in the door. The people that are good move up and, and the people that stay connected and work hard and can um, become the executive director of a small organization trying to create the 51st state. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Which is every once in a while, I just sort of pause and I'm like, how audacious of, is it of me to think that I can just make another state um, along with all of the other people working on it? Um, and the other people that have worked on it for years. But um, it all just comes about of, of, of continuing to sort of say what's next and what is the next thing we have to challenge, and uh, what is the next question we have to answer, um, and how do we do that? So, um, you know, it, grassroots politics is, is a fascinating thing to be a part of, and I'm really glad of, of, and proud of the work that we've done. Um, on a day-to-day basis, uh, a lot of what we do is is trying to both be responsive and drive a narrative at the same time. Um, how do we get people to learn about an issue? How do we find opportunities to do podcasts with random people from across the country um, to educate, <laughs> to educate and teach audiences that we wouldn't necessarily be able to see in person? And at the same time, how do we respond to what's happening in the atmosphere? So while we're recording this. Uh, podcast the democratic national convention is going on and i sort of have one eye to, one eye sort of keeping an eye on it in case somebody talks about statehood so that i can start tweeting and you know the things that we need to do in rapid response so um it is it, like i said we have an overarching strategy but it's really about being both sort of responsive and pushing for opportunity when we can and, and identifying opportunities and, and jumping through them
2: sounds like ever have a presence to be honest like you're, you're doing that and you're doing this particular interview that's hey man that's multitasking and and just 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 hearing all the all the different organizations you work for that the uh, the idea of um just being involved with in progressive politics for more than like you know 20 years that's that's pretty impressive to me like you know i'm i'm very you know very impressed i have to say like you know i personally i'm trying to you know just be a little bit more involved because I'm tired of being one of these dudes on the couch that's just kind of come constantly complaining and not really yeah. be, being about the change that I want to see. So in that um
1: it's, it's one of the things that I keep pushing people back on. You know, I, I think that we have a lot of, there are a lot of amazing activists, especially um, younger one, uh, activists and stuff that are doing amazing work. And there's a lot of activists of, of an older generation like mine that are doing good work as well. And then there's a lot of keyboard activists that I like to say and who, who have a lot of opinions and share them greatly, but haven't done the work. And if you really want to make change, it's about showing up. And a lot of work can be done online. Like I'm not knocking the power of persuasion um, being done digitally, especially in the COVID era, right? Like we have to do it all digitally. Uh, But there is a a big difference between just sort of sharing your opinion repeatedly um, and tying that to action that that moves individuals and therefore moves issues. So um, that, that would be sort of my one little old man talking piece of advice of, of, you know, walk in the room once we're allowed to walk in rooms again. Um,
2: no, I appreciate it, Obi-Wan Kenobi. I, I'm
1: uh, all with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, walk in the room and make the change happen that you want to have happen because it's it's done by, like, you know, there's been ongoing sort of fights in the Democratic um, Party's platform, right? And and whether or not the, the progressive wing or the moderate wing is going to be the dominant force in Democratic politics. And those fights are won based on who shows up. It's all voted publicly, right? The platform planks are not secret. Uh, They're voted on by the platform committee. The platform committee is chosen by the people who showed up at their state and county level conventions. Um, All of it is done transparently, and it's all done in front of everybody else. And so the people who show up in the room are the ones that make the decisions. So um, uh, that's that's sort of my one big piece. If it's something you care about, show up for it.
2: Well, I, I mean that I, for me, that particular comment, that whole comment right there, was the biggest takeaway. I really hope for our listeners taking that. You know, action starts with you actually being in the rooms, soaking up the yeah. knowledge, learning about these processes. And if you're there and if you're present, you get to actually be a part of those decisions that are happening on a grand scale. And I, yeah, again, man, this is all appreciative. I have to ask. Um, you know, can you tell us like what um the the Washington D.C. Emissions Act is? Um, I heard sure. that uh, uh, El- uh Representative uh, Eleanor uh, Holmes Norton put this together.
1: Yeah. So, the, so uh, as everybody knows, or as I think everybody knows, we have 50 states, right? Um, and then we also have this little chunk of land here in the District of Columbia that mm-hmm. serves as the nation, nation's capital that isn't a state. We are, we're not a state. We're not a city. We're not a county. Uh, we're all of the above, and we're wrapped up in what's called a federal district. And as I mentioned at the outset, we don't have any representation. We have no U.S. Senators, and Eleanor Holmes Norton, our representative, or our delegate in Congress in the House, can't vote. Um, and so the Washington, D.C. Admissions Act changes that, and it makes the majority of the land that is presently the Washington, the District of Columbia, it changes it into the state of Washington, D.C. And that matters to the 705,000 people that live here, which is more than Vermont and Wyoming, by the way. Um, because it means that we are finally equal. We have full participation. We pay taxes right now and we have no representation. So we end 230 years of taxation without representation. So the bill would take a small chunk of land uh, and keep it as the national capital, the place where the Capitol building itself is, the White House, the Lincoln Memorial, this stuff everybody sees in postcards, would stay as the national capital because nobody lives there. And so it doesn't need representation. The space that everybody lives in would become the 51st state, and we would very conveniently continue to call it Washington, D.C. The only difference is instead of calling it District of Columbia, we would call it Douglas Commonwealth, named after Frederick Douglass, the noted abolitionist. Um, That would fully enfranchise 705,000 people. It would assign us two senators and one voting representative, just like all the other states. And it would finally end uh, 230 years of basically racist oppression of a population that lives here and has lived here now. Um, so that's what the act does in a nutshell. It makes the, it creates the 51st stone. 230 years, my God.
2: 1801, oh,
1: 18, oh, so it's 219 years, sorry, I'm off by, I'm off by. I mean, we'll anything, over...
2: <laughs> <laughs> anything more than, than, than 200 years is still kind of like concerning. Um, yeah. what, were, what were some obstacles that you faced getting this bill passed and how did you overcome yeah. them?
1: So um, the bill hasn't quite passed yet. Otherwise, we'd all be buying new U.S. flags, um, mm. we, <laughs> we, we, which people are going to have to do. And they look great. Um, we've passed through the House of Representatives, and it, we did that on June 26th of this year. Uh, and that in itself was historic. It's the first time in history that a statehood bill has passed. Uh, through either chamber of the Congress. So if you know how legislation is made, right, you have to pass it through the House and then through the Senate, and then the president has to sign it. So we're only a third of the way there, but it's a historic third because we've never done it before. Um, so we're pretty happy about the progress that we've made. And the work came about, uh, the success came about by building a coalition. Uh, DC Vote is a very small organization. At most, we have four staff. At the moment, we only have two Uh And so we couldn't possibly do the work that we need to do or talk to enough people or have the relationships that we would need to have on our own. And so we looked to build coalitions. And one of the biggest things that uh, myself and and the woman I work with named Barbara Helmick, who's our director of programs, one of the most successful things we did was to brand, uh, not brand, to really identify that this is a racial justice issue, issue and that it's an issue of voter suppression. Right, we have, You have, it is the original gerrymander. They drew a line around us and told us we were not going to be represented. Um, and so once we started to make those conversations and make that case that this was voter suppression, that it was racially motivated, um, that the, the coalition started to expand. And we started to gain more and more organizations that had real strength and real power, both in Congress, but also across the country when you're talking to organizations like the AFL-CIO or the Human Rights Campaign, Peace, uh, big, huge organizations that have members or the League of Women Voters. The League of Women Voters has been instrumental in this effort. Um, by building a coalition with those organizations, we were able to reach memberships across the country. Our little org- organization would have never been able to reach, right? I don't have memberships in Dubuque, Iowa, but the League of Women Voters does. That coalition also helped us in Congress. It helped us talk to members of the House of Representatives because they have long-standing relationships. And more importantly, they have constituents based on their chapters that live in the districts of the members of the House of Representatives who we were targeting or who we wanted to talk to. As I, like I said, D.C. doesn't have somebody who can vote, so we had to talk to everybody else who can vote in order to get the votes that we needed for the bill. Um, and so that's really how it came about, was a repeated effort of taking a small coalition and making it bigger, By using the organizations, we could leverage uh, conversations with members of the House of Representatives. When we got a couple more House of Representatives members, that would make more organizations listen to us. That would give us some more organizations, which would let us reach a couple more members of Congress. We sort of went back and forth and back and forth and worked with allies in other organizations and some local volunteer organizations like Members United for D.C. Statehood and the State Coalition. And, of course, worked with our elected um, delegate, Eleanor Holmes Norton, as she worked her colleagues in the House, uh, to sort of uh, back and forth between the inside and the outside strategy. Um, so that coalition building is really what led us to uh, the success of of passing it through the House for the first time in history um, and now having more support in the Senate than ever before, although we haven't quite moved it across the Senate floor yet.
2: So what do you think your chances look like for getting to get it passed in the Senate?
1: In this year right now, dismal to pathetic. Um, Senator Mitch McConnell... Uh, is not a, a statehood uh, supporter. Um, he is not, uh, in, in fact, he called it, it full-out communism. You uh, can to me, Mitch! <laughs> which, which, I don't understand exactly how people voting is communism. I think it's actually the opposite, but I won't um, probably have the opportunity to ask Senator McConnell that question directly. Um, but we don't anticipate it happening uh, this year. We... Uh, are keeping an eye, like I said, on the Democratic National Convention, but also on the November elections and are optimistic that there's going to be a more supportive Senate uh, coming in in in, um, January. And at that point, we are pretty confident in where we're going to stand uh, on the issue uh, at that point. Uh, But it's not going to pass this year. So come January of 2021, we will start the whole process over and and go pass it through the House again, which should be much easier the second time than it was the first time, uh, and, and then take it to the Senate shortly thereafter.
2: I got to ask, because, um, you know, just so um, other folks can kind of like hear and um, know maybe other organizations you might be working with, but are there other pro- progressive candidates you work for and what platforms and affiliations did they represent?
1: Uh, yeah, I have worked for uh, progressive organizations or candidates pretty much my entire career. I, I once had to work for a blue dog in Georgia, but I don't like to talk about it. Um, as I mentioned, I was the campaign manager for Mayor Bowser uh, here in D.C. Um, I don't know if folks saw the Black Lives Matter uh, mural that she painted on the street that leads to the White House, which I thought was a pretty baller move. Um, I was uh, I worked for the, an organization called Progressive Caucus. Uh, sorry, Progressive Congress, which is the outside organization of the Progressive Caucus in the House of Representatives uh, and worked with now Attorney General Keith Ellison in Minnesota. And. Um, as well as congressman oh i'm going to forget his name raul grava from arizona um i have worked at all levels of campaigns um from municipal elections uh city and county all the way up to working on two different presidential campaigns um both of which we won but we lost them both technically and that should give you a sense of who it was Um, um the issues that I have really spent a lot of time on in my career are, is LGBT, uh, LGBTQ uh, issues. Um, I, I was part of the human rights campaign uh, when Lawrence v. Texas decision um, overturned the sodomy laws and was there as the marriage fight was beginning. Uh, and then was part of Equality Ohio in the heart of, of the marriage fight there. So um, I spent a chunk of time in, in that, that space as well.
2: Let me ask a little side question, um, you know, it, and especially nowadays with everybody having, like you said, like keyboard warriors, especially having like this, like, uh, power or ability to kind of like, you know, rifle off, um, an opinion about things like almost immediately, not even without thinking or doing any type of, I want to, you know, it it can make for a hostile kind of like environment almost, or a hostile workplace in some, some scenarios on, you know, um. I guess I want to ask, like, you know, have you, yourself, like, you know, messed, like, like, have, um, like, I guess, like, what was the worst type of, like, um, response you may have had to having your views or having your stance, I should say, you know?
1: You know, it's funny. It's not actually uh, online. It was in person. Um, if anyone is familiar with a gentleman named Fred Phelps, uh, who has since passed away, but he leads, a, he led a quote-unquote church in Topeka, Kansas, um, that is notorious for protesting um, LGBT events. Um, they protested the funeral of Matthew Shepard um, with these huge signs that say, that say God hates fags or fags should die of AIDS, and um, sorry for the language, but that's what the signs say, Um And uh, I went nose to nose with him at an event in Kansas, in Topeka, Kansas, uh, with him yelling in my face. So um, there's definitely uh, some comfort in in anonymity that the internet provides, but there is uh, hatred and vile behavior in person, too. Um, And that was absolutely the worst experience I've ever had as far as as politics, was a man who really just wanted to erase me and, and my family and my friends and people like me off the planet um uh screaming in my face as i was standing up for what we in. well
2: that answers the next question like you know like and he has any your situation has been dangerous yes so uh <laughs>
1: was, um... you know honestly it wasn't dangerous i i, I will profess i have i have a, an immense amount of privilege i am six feet one and weigh close to 300 pounds so um <laughs> There's not a lot of physical, I have, I've have never had to deal with um, feeling like somebody was going to pull a weapon um, or, or, and I haven't been tear gassed and I haven't. Um, so I know that there are people who have dealt with way more than I have um, and have put themselves on the line way farther than I've been willing to. And I, my hat's mm-hmm. off to them. Um, but I feel pretty confident in a lot of crowds because uh, I'm not a shrinking violet or all that small. <laughs>
2: Blessed, man. Like I, I have been to again. That's that's not cute.
1: Uh, <laughs> no, I, like I said, I don't I don't have it in me to do it. Um uh, and uh kudos to those who are willing to put themselves on the line that way. And it may come to that at some point. Um, but I've been able to not be in those situations. Uh and have and removed myself a couple of times before those situations got that hostile just because I, I just can't. Um I'm just not comfortable at that level and and Kudos to the FAR, Um, because we need all levels of engagement like that.
2: Yes, we do. And like, you know, it was one thing like to be out there, and that's, you know, I I that's that's how I feel like I'm like I'm, I'm needed right now. But like if yeah. I'm not doing the other side of it, which is making sure that I'm aware of like the politics that are happening on a local level and on a grand scale, like I'm that I'm not I'm, I'm not doing the entire job. I'm not following through. And you know, that's that's what right. Jamal and I try to impress on our listeners often. Um I wanna ask, um, you know, and this is and this comes with a caveat, um, only if you're comfortable sharing. Um, but sure. you you said you're obviously a supporter of progressive politics. Um, yeah. are you would you consider yourself a supporter or were you at any time a supporter of Mr. Sanders or maybe Mrs. AOC? Or Miss AOC, excuse me.
1: Oh, gotcha. I uh, I I was not a Bernie Sanders supporter. Um, um and that goes back years. And, and I, can, I can get into it for reasons if we want to. I am a huge fan of AOC. Um, yeah, she man, sits on like the it. oversight committee, which is the committee that, um, that has jurisdiction over our bill. So it was great to have her in our hearing. Um, and she's been a champion online of statehood as well, and in some remarks. So, uh, I'm a big fan of her and her energy and and her smarts. And um, I too, at one point in my life, was a bartender, so I feel that connection as well. Um, and and, and um, I think she walks the walk and talks the talk, and that's that's what I really respect about her. Um, but uh, yeah, I was not a, I was not a Bernie Sanders supporter.
2: Eh, I understand. I mean, I, I, me personally, I I was at one point, but as time uh, went on and, and um, the, uh, the primaries uh, played out like they did, uh, I wasn't very, I was, I was kind of, I lost my taste for what I thought was the change that America needed at that time.
1: Yeah. And I will uh, say in, in this cycle, my first choice in this cycle was um, our now vice presidential nominee. uh, Uh, senator harris of california and my second choice was senator warren of, of massachusetts um so i'm I'm halfway s- thrilled with where we are right
2: now <laughs> yeah yeah like I, there's, there's a little bit of hope i i hear you and i don't want to say you no know, discredit biden uh biden because like you know I, there were some positive things that he did do as a you know as a, um the vice president but uh, yeah, as of like you know the, the the history of what we know of Biden, uh, <laughs> has become so evident. And again, this is people that are new to that type of politics because you know a lot of us were jaded around the time when uh, Obama yeah. took presidency. Um, you you see his contributions to like you know the uh, the prison industrial complex and everything like that. Yeah. I don't I don't want to get too deep, but like just knowing yeah. that. I think one of... thing.
1: I think one thing that I would ask of of progressives and and not to some condescending but younger activists and younger volunteers and such um, is to take a look at what was progressive what was considered progressive at the time mm. so one of the jobs of people who are and I are activists and people who are engaged and, and doing this fight on the on on the on the constant is moving what's called the overton window right of, of moving what is possible and through dialogue Our goal as activists is to get elected officials to change their mind. That's literally our goal, Mm. is to get them to change their mind, which means at some point we think they were wrong, right?
2: Mm -hmm. Yes, yes.
1: So we can't always hold that against them, that they were at one point wrong, if there's demonstrated movement towards what we think is right. I understand they may not that always they may not always move as fast as we want them to. There are mm-hmm. some sins that are unforgivable. I understand that as well. Mm-hmm. Um and there are some opinions that I, that I think are unforgivable at any time. Uh, but it is important to understand the context when the decisions were made and that I'm not labeling any specific decision or any specific policy on this at all. Mm-hmm. And I and I you know wouldn't go through them one by one. Um, But I think it's important for because so I look even at the at the work that I do have done in my career. And when I first started the human rights campaign, the largest LGBT organization, uh, we never even talked about the word marriage. Never. Right. It wasn't even in the window of what we were possibly considering. So the fact that Obama and Biden and Clintons were opposed to marriage at that time, not even remotely surprising because we weren't even asking for it, <laughs> right? Mm. So those are some of the things that you sort of have to. Do. At that point, all we wanted was relationship recognition. It's literally the term we were used. We wanted people to recognize that we had relationships. We didn't even necessarily want them to validate them. We just wanted them to say, "Yes, you have relationships," <laughs> and that was in two thousand three. Uh, mm. So the 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 the. the Wedge of a position spectrum changes over time because we're effective at the work we do. And we have to acknowledge that our effectiveness also means previous positions were not great or bad or really, really horrible. But if people are matching us or at least keeping pace with us as we're shifting that wedge of of the range of position that's a, that is now not only acceptable but progressive,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you got to sort of invite people to come with you. Oh, um, otherwise man. there's no point in in trying to get people to change their mind.
2: Absolutely. All not, you gotta do totally then is change their
1: change the people.
2: Totally agree. So you know that, what you're echoing? You're echoing um Miss Angela Davis. She was saying very something very similar, kinda like, you know, yes, we know about their past. Yes, we know about the the things that, you know, they may have been endorsing at, at some point in time. And you strike a great point about making sure that we um we uh take the time to look at what was considered progressive at the time, you yeah. know especially especially in the early thousands, like you said two thousand and three yeah. like yeah i I graduated high school in two thousand three, yeah. so like you know all of this stuff was just new to me too, and we we're all kind of coming into it, but um, I wanted to uh follow up with um you know how. You know, I, I and I, I guess I ask everybody this, but like I guess the question I want to know is, um, you know, how how optimistic are you feeling for um, this coming election in November?
1: Okay, so um, like we did the disclaimer before about recording, I'm going to do my own disclaimer for a second. Uh, I'm going to sure. take my hat off as the executive director of DC Vote because I run a five hundred one c three which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that can't do electoral work. Uh, and mm-hmm. therefore, I probably shouldn't share opinions about electoral outcomes. However, Absolutely. I like the subject. So yeah. now you're just talking about uh, Bo, who's an activist. Um, and and um, I, I am feeling relatively optimistic about the presidential race. Um, I, the, I keep looking at the map of what are swing states or what, what are the states in play. And the states that are in play uh, are traditionally Republican states, um, traditional yeah. red states. Texas is in play. That's bizarre to me, um, but it's valid. Like the polling is valid that it's actually in play. I don't know if we're going to win Texas, but the fact that it's in play means that the window that we're playing in is different than four years. Ago. Uh, mm-hmm. Last four years ago, um, Pennsylvania was in play and New North Carolina was in play, for example, leading into election night. Um, those two are t- traditionally either purple or Democratic. So we've shifted the the window of possibility. The last count I saw was that solids or leans are two sixty-eight electoral votes for the Democrats, which means we just need one more state of of some kind. Um, so that's that's a good sign. I am I am nervous about the Senate. Um, I think that the taking back the Senate is only about a half a degree less important than winning the presidency. Um, because of, of even if, if Biden is to win, uh, you know, the the McConnell will just go back to being the world's largest obstructionist. Yes. Um, and so um, the House seems fine. I am more, I, I am starting to look more and more at what the state legislature-related races are doing. Uh, you know, the census is going on right now, um, which means the next thing that happens is redistricting. And that's going to be controlled by state legislatures. So I'm trying to pay a little more attention to state legislative races. Um, to see if we're going to flip some of the chambers and and make, and and get it back to a point where we're not dealing with a rigged system for ten years.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope you're right, man. I, I, I'm I'm getting really uh, nervous about how he's just like I'm moving with the um, with the postal service now, and just all. Yeah, about- I think
1: I think that was an overreach, um, and I think he's going to get smacked pretty hard on it. Uh, you know, we saw the postmaster general walk back some of the stuff today, not nearly enough. Um, there's still work to be done on it, but, um, the fact that he walked it back before having to go testify, um, I, I think it was an overreach and I think it's going kind to of, you, you, you can't mess with in, in elections. You cannot mess with seniors. Mm-hmm. You cannot mess with social security. We can't mess with prescription drugs and the mail does all three things at one time. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's just not a good, it's just not a good idea. Yeah.
2: Especially now that we're dealing with COVID stuff. So yeah. Right.
1: And now the mail now the mail impacts regular folks, right? Like usually it only it pretty much the mail pretty much only impacts seniors and medics and their and their medication or their social security checks. Um, and you've now managed to to step on that rail. And I don't think that was a good move. <laughs> no, no,
2: no. I think I think we're fine if we pull out now. So <laughs> <laughs> so So with that being said, you know, that's pretty much um the the um the gist those are the questions that I have um I guess maybe we could follow up with one final um any particular um, message like uh, uh you uh you know did you want to leave um our listeners with like uh is there, do you want to um echo any points that you've made tonight um anything like that you know
1: yeah I want to I want to make sure I mention that if people are are listening from around the country we need help with statehood. Uh, our, uh, Like I said, we have no representation, so we need representation from other places to help us out. So if people go to our, our action website, which is showup4dc.com, uh, it's the number four. So it's showup4dc.com. There's all kinds of things people can do, whether it's social media sharing, graphics, uh, make a video, write a, a letter, click and send an email, send us a donation, whatever level people are comfortable getting involved with. Um, we need folks to help from all over the country because we can't do it by ourselves. So that would be our, my my parting message is, um, you know, be in the room where it happens and 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 get involved with the issues you care about.
2: Well, Bo, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with Jamal and I. Uh, this is a very fun podcast, probably my favorite one. Uh, thank you for the, oh, thanks. the, the information, the conversation. All of that has been, uh, yeah, excellent, and uh, I feel a little bit more informed personally. Um, things that I weren't, like uh, I wasn't aware of. If if I if I didn't, if uh, our friend Marie didn't reach out to us and let us know that you were interested in getting interviewed in the first place, I would have never known that DC was not the state, man. <laughs> like I just yep. thought it's in the country, yep. so we're all the same, right? <laughs>
1: It's our number one challenge is lack of information. So uh, I'm super glad that the, that they reached out and that we were able to put it together.
2: Nah, man, I I appreciate it too. And when I learned about the um the, the politics happening out there, and I learned about uh, the the uh, what the population looks like and how it's poorly reflected, I just I you know I I made sure that you know to start getting a little bit more in like you know in the know about that kind of stuff. And then I started asking questions like, what do I know? What do I know about Massachusetts? And <laughs> That's where I've been at now. <laughs> yep. and yes, I know. I know there's a lot there. I don't. even – We don't got the time. Well, <laughs> not talking about Massachusetts, but yeah. Um, so yeah, I just want to let you know how uh, how appreciative we are that you that you came on the show tonight. So thank you so much. And you bet. Um, yeah, um, I think you will be able to find us on Spotify. Um, Jamal, where else are we? Yeah, man.
0: Anywhere where you find your podcast, you can find this podcast Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, Pandora, and the list goes on. And I make Fantastic. sure it's on the description.
1: Great. Thanks so much for your guys' time. Oh, thank thank you. you. Thank you.
2: And keep up the good work, sir.
1: Thanks a lot. You too.
2: <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Social Justice, the New American Revolution. Make sure you tune in tomorrow for the latest episode. And if you want to be heard, email us at thesocialjusticepodcast at gmail.com.